Yaate, hello. Welcome to Real Native Roots Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots, hosted by yours truly, Vicky Katsuli Boy Oldman. I am a lover of stories, a connector, and a holder of wisdom keepers. Each month, we will be connecting with our Native relatives and exploring what medicine our guests share and offer to us. Please join me on this uncharted journey to learn, connect, and reflect. Ayahat, thank you. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? 2024. Can you believe that? Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you, first of all, for your following and your support. I just am so blessed that I have such beloved followers and just looking forward to this year. Excited about our guest today. I hope this year gives you love, grace, inspiration, creativity, and of course, learning. I also hope that as you go into this year, that you remember you are a teacher, that you find opportunities to teach and share your wisdom with others. And it may be a stranger, maybe a young person, a relative, a friend, that you do that with grace. This past year, 2023, I feel like it really offered me an opportunity to take risk and follow my intuition. Doing that allowed me to really have faith in being okay with not knowing whatever happens and how I land on my two feet that it is meant for me. If you are following my podcast that I've been on this motorcycle journey and it's been fabulous. I think the last trip was like 17 days on a bike traveling to gigs. So it's been fun and I'm looking forward to what 2024 offers. I ask folks, what's your word for 2024? My word is grace, that I show up wherever that may be, in person, at the grocery store, at work, engagement with people I love and know, for people I don't know. And I have grace for myself when I don't follow through on things that fell through the cracks whether I'm maybe a little slow with work or just didn't get to the last load of laundry that I'm just, you know, at grace with that. So with that, you all have to excuse me. I've been fighting a cold these past couple of weeks. I have a little deep voice here. So I just ask that you give me grace for that. So I found a poem for us and I hope it offers you love in the sense of being fully present. The poem is called Remember by Joe Harjo, and this was in 1951 when this poem was uh, written. The poem starts this way. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the star's stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point in time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are. Red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, 
we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember, you are all people and all people are you. Remember, you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember, all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember, language comes from this. Remember, the dance language is, that life is, remember. Mm, beautiful. I, I love it. I've read it before, and every time I read it, it just gives me like a warm feeling that I am a part of you, you're a part of me. Everything is so interconnected. And so I leave that gift with you. All right. I'm going to make it through this podcast, <laughs> my voice. So I am going to introduce our guests. I'm so excited that she said yes, this beautiful woman. I actually never met her in person. So I'm putting that out to universe that one day I get to meet her in person, maybe this year. I actually found her on Instagram. What got me curious about her was that she always posted and still continues to post pictures of petroglyphs. I wanted her to come on and tell us a little bit about that. But of course, we want to get to know her a little bit. What I know of her is that she is from the Métis Nation and her bloodline is a part of the Potasha resistance. And so she'll tell us a little bit about that. I hope I'm saying these things right so she can correct me when she gets on. The one thing that I really appreciated her sharing about herself a little bit is that she grew up with her great-grandparents, has fond memories of that, spent a lot of time with her brother out in the land, hunting, fishing, and just adventuring. For sure, being out in nature is, I know what fuels her and resets her as well. She has multiple degrees in forestry, anthropology, Native American studies, and she also has spent a lot of time connecting with various indigenous artists, people who are in the fashion industry, well over 20 different designers and fashion collaborations she's been a part of, participate in a lot of different modeling projects. You'll see her probably in different magazines, the Tribal Arts Magazine, for example. She was a part of a project called the 400 Year Project, One Land, One People Project. So lots of different projects that she's been involved in. I would love for my friend, my beautiful indigenous sister to come on and say hello. Atatagawan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Please come in and show your beautiful face and bring your spirit onto the screen. Hello, Tansekia. Wow, I am troubled. I'm at a loss for words. Just the most beautiful, kindest things that you said that came from the heart and the spirit. and. I think those are the best things. Those are the best things in life. So I'll start off with a traditional greeting. It's in uh, Anishinaabe Moin. I'm just recently learning Medchif. I know a few words and I can understand it, but my original uh, introduction is Ani Indigenous Apta Anishinaabe Kwe. So it just Beautiful. says hello. 
<laughs> Hello, my name is Otago Anachakosescu. It's Evening Star Woman. He was gifted to me from Jerry Prosper from One Arrow. He was my adopted grandfather, Pleans Cree. Niha Wen. I'm from Northern Saskatchewan. Originally grew up a little bit in La Ronge first. And if anyone knows where that is, it's very remote. <laughs> I love very, it. <laughs> very cold. But before we jump into your origin, we have to ask you, what are you wearing? Like your dress is beautiful, your earrings and the painting. Like we have to, I'm like so curious. I have to ask you. Yeah. So this is Jillian Waterman. She's a, I'll just quickly stand up. It's a beautiful body con from a, you know, dress goes all the way up in the back as well. The pattern is 360. It's a nice midi length. It goes down almost to my ankles. So she has been a friend of mine for years, uh, years and years and years. I've known Jillian Waterman. I've walked with her. I did the NYC uh, show with her as well. We went to Brooklyn. It was incredible. It was a once in a lifetime experience that I hope wow. anyone in the fashion industry gets to be a part of. And then my earrings are by my friend Tyler from, I don't want to botch it, but the Thule Reservation in California. And so these are Bigfoot Sasquatch that he carved from Abalone. And this is their original. I've seen that I've been to this site and received the teachings about uh, the Bigfoot there. It's an incredible, incredible artwork inside of the reservation. So you have to have permission to go there. And it, it was a really special thing. But he is one of the original storytellers through his great grandmother and his grandmother. It's been passed to him. So I feel like these are just really special. I've been there. You know, we share teachings. So I wanted to showcase these. And then the painting. <laughs> so I actually did it myself. So oh, I don't you know if you did. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, I had a dream. I had a dream before COVID happened that there was a sickness coming so that I painted it. It was so powerful in my dream and it kept coming and coming and coming. So I just painted what I kind of saw in my dream and I've kind of kept it as a reminder since it's like, oh, <laughs> I love it. The thing about art is so beautiful. It's like that that's what came to you, right? So when I, if you didn't tell me the story, I would have had a whole different interpretation of it, right? So it's so beautiful. That's cool. I had no idea yeah, you were a painter. Oh, I wouldn't call myself a painter, but <laughs> I like the paint. I've been doing it since I was young. It's just something that's, I think as, as Native peoples, we are naturally creators. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We're sewing, painting, singing, drumming, poetry, you name it. We are, we're in it and we're so multi-talented. I think that's the thing as well that people... They think that we're just, if we're a model, then we're just modeling. Mm -hmm. But it's so diverse. If you're a designer, you're just designing. And yeah. that's not always accurate. These people have day jobs. They have families. They're doing other things out there, maybe progressing the movements, working on Native rights. It's very multifaceted. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about us. Right. I, I totally agree. And I love the fact that we are really getting in different spaces author, producer. We're there. We've always been there. You know, I feel like we've become more vocal and making sure we're at the table to contribute, even to say that we have been contributing for many, many, many years. I totally agree with you. Well, speaking of contributions, and thank you for sharing the beautiful art that you're wearing and also the art behind you. I want to talk a little bit about the art that's on your face. But before we do that, I'm curious, what did you think of the poem? Did anything bubble up for you as you were listening to the poem? What spoke to you? So many things. So the first thought I had was of Nokomis, my grandmother Moon. 
a very important figure in my life and my spirituality. And then I started thinking my own family and, and what does it mean to be a grandmother? And as you're reading through that and I'm hearing about the, the mother's breasts and the labor and bringing us into this world, thinking about our grandmothers, our great grandmothers, the first women, the first female beings even. And then I started thinking of just going off like the spider web of life and the interconnections, the divine feminine, like what is all of that? And it gave birth to everything because I feel often that with patriarchy, we think of creator sometimes as being this male figure. But for myself, I think of female giving birth to the everything and the interconnectedness. And at the end of the day, it's all about unconditional love and coming together and what that really means. And those were the thoughts that were coming through my head and the feelings and emotions that were moving through my body while you were reading that. And just the power of that and why that's important, why everything is important. It is, right? Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad that it spoke to you in the sense of like connecting to who you are as a woman and that you are a continuum of your grandmother, your great grandmother, and so forth. Tell us a little bit about your origin, a little storytelling about who, how you became the woman you are. Gosh, it's so, it's so hard to come from one point because I grew up in the home that Mariah uh, Bremner, Nate Bremner. So she's born a Bremner and her, her lineage is just really impressive. And then Mary Jean-Baptiste Boucher Jr. Also my family a lot. If people Googled their names, were very much involved in the history and the formation. While Canada, the Dominion of Canada, we were the main resistance to those colonial forces coming onto our lands and even just developing the fur trade itself. Like there was a point where Sir George Simpson was almost an ancestor of mine. If anyone's aware of him, he was the main director in charge of the whole North American HBC. And that's pretty massive. He was the one that was running the show. So Hudson Bay Company, the fur trade up north and even down here in, in the U.S., like we call it the south of the medicine line. And he was quite the villain. So I'm glad, personally. <laughs> But he had married one of my ancestresses and in a country marriage, and she had two children discarded. And then she was in an arranged, he set her up with an arranged marriage. And I came from the second marriage, my lineage. So there's a lot of key historical figures that are involved in my family's story and who they were. And as I delve deeper into not just my oral history, but history itself, you see them coming through the lines and the stories coming together and how a lot of our ancestors knew each other even before they got married or a lot of the families knew each other. Anyways, Mariah Bramner and Jean-Baptiste, I grew up in the house that they built after the resistance at Batoche. And Mariah's story is one that I love to shed light on because Mariah is a very important historical figure. And I see that she's beginning to be rewritten out. She was responsible for ensuring the continued legacy of those Batoche Métis lines, one of the matriarchs involved. She stepped out on the Gatling gun when they were firing on the church in the rectory, and she asked Middleton if they could leave, right? If, if she could take them and leave. And he was amused because he had seen her in the camp. So he knew she was brave. She was brave. And he said, look, you can choose between the women, children, and the elderly, or your brothers, your uncles, your husbands on the field. It's your choice. She went back and she she was like, the future of our nation 
is in these walls. The men that can take care of themselves, let's go. So the women rounded up all of them and they were allowed to go down the river and away from all of it. But that began a time of period where we have a sash and it's called the dark times. Mm -hmm. So the sash is part of our regalia and it has a black border at both ends. And that's to, for that time, to recognize that period of time that was really difficult for us. It's when they went full on extinguishment of our people, hunting us down you know, mm. hanging us, everything that happens with that violence. I appreciate you carrying on the story and how important the oral story of your relatives. I assume that was coming from your grandmother who raised you. Yep. Go it on. actually came from my grandfather. Oh, so your grandfather's John, side. Okay. Yeah. My grandfather, the late Senator John Boucher, he was a leader, an elder, a knowledge keeper for our people. And he was actually the one that brought us to the international state, the Métis culture and the nation. When Nelson Mandela visited, he had a dream the night before tell, where he approached Mandela and told him about our sash and our people's plights. But in this dream, Nelson Mandela was very excited to hear because of his own, yeah. you know, his own, their own history there was so similar to ours in some ways. The Canadian government had directed my grandfather not to touch Nelson Mandela, just to present your gift and get out of here. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like it, it is what it is. So, but he did not because of his dream. So he approached Nelson Mandela. He asked if he could tie the sash around him, which is an honor for us. And then mm -hmm. he gifted him with a Métis name, a diamant, which means diamond, because his light shines upon the world. And Africa is known for their diamonds to represent that in our nation. And later in par Parliament, Nelson Mandela wore that sash when addressing them. So it was a really beautiful moment because then everyone was like, who are these Métis people? What is this thing that he's wearing? And it really helped us. And they retained a friendship past my grandfather's passing because we would always whisper because he would, Nelson Mandela would call my grandfather at home. They had, you know, discussed leadership issues and it was a beautiful process, but that was who had taught me that story. So he grew up raised by Mariah because, you know, it's not that big of a gap. Like Mariah mm -hmm. passed away in the 1950s. So it, it really wasn't that mm -hmm. long ago. People think Batash was a faraway history. It yeah. did happen in 1885, but she was my great-great-grandmother, then my great-grandmother, and then my grandfather. So I was raised by my great-grandmother mainly, and then my grandfather who had imparted the culture on me and my cousins. It was vital for us to know all of that information and the real stories of what happened there. But he's the one who taught me. And I grew up in the house that Mariah and John Baptist had built. You know, really? Steve, huh? Yeah, I was 10 minutes away from, I was 10 minutes away from Batash, like, the, you know, a driving distance. I sat in all the same chairs Mariah did. You know, there was a rocking chair at the top of our staircase, which my aunt now has, which is beautiful, with her portrait at her home. And I used to sit in that very rocking chair that she used to sit in and raise all her children in. It was a, it was a beautiful moment. It's so uh, is home still there and, and, and still there. And family there, living there. Yeah. yeah, it's still there. And it's a very special place because there's also oral history connected to the land. So when I was a, a small child, my grandfather would take me out into the back. We did a lot of walks. Like it was important for us to be connected to the land. And there was a ridge. And he would tell me that the people would come from the West and move to the East. And that was their, their migration pattern. And that was where the river used to be. There used to be huge ceremonial circles there, giant circles. A lot of times people interpret these rings, right? They see these stone rings and they're like, oh, they're teepee circles. 
But that's not always the case, right? A lot of times these were ceremonial sites where fasting happened and other things. So that was behind there. That was important that he told me that. And the house was actually built on a sacred spring. Growing up, I was like drinking as well, you know, like inundated with it, not fully understanding the cultural significance of that. It was a place that was called where the buffalo drank all year round. So the bison used to gather on those lands and we would see bison skulls, bison antiquities. That was like a normal thing for me as a child. They're in the riverbanks, they're all over the place, but we didn't really think about it, right? It was just part of our lifestyle. And there's some stuff I can't talk about, but it is a very important place and we also have something called the saint louis ghost light the which the, it's called the saint louis ghost light okay and they talk about this train and um, you know they've had scientists out there trying to debunk it but what i was told by ceremonial people what really happened is when the train was being built there was no consultation to the land right there was no connection it was just we're coming through we're building this you know the colonists are coming through <laughs> Yeah, taking just eradicating everyone and everything in its path. And so there were ceremonies held and the, and these spirits were so angry that they somehow had trapped that in that space and time. But if you ask someone who is a ceremonial or doesn't know the history, they're going to tell you the same old trope, right? Like, oh, it was a conductor who died in the winter or had his head chopped, you know, like yeah. all of the yeah. authorities. <laughs> but it, it's not what we know as the truth as spiritual people. And so that railway track was ripped out quite some years ago, but we, we all go to it if you live around that area and you see the lights and they come down and they're like ghost lights and they're just like little orbs that come down the old, old railway. So, wow. Beautiful. It's a very, it's a very sacred I mean, place. It yeah. is a sacred place. And it's just, the thing is, is that folks that understand about respecting sites like that and they're very sacred and it just sounds like growing up with your grandfather and taking these nature walks and him telling you the history was a beautiful way of growing up. And so much has shifted when I think about, you know, my my parents, when they grew up and then being with my grandmother, living off the land. And what I mean by that yeah. is like hauling water, chopping your own woods, you know, yeah. uh, ranchers, you know, having like sheep and cattle. It was a different lifestyle than like I have a 25 and a 20 year old, they didn't grow up that way. They grew up in the urban setting. So their skills are different than like my tolerance of being out in nature, you know, being able to sustain. And I know that you and your brother grew up together. And what would be some fond memories that you had sharing with him living off the land with your grandparents? Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> in the summertime, we would walk the riverbank all day. And it's interesting because back then we didn't carry food or water. We were just two kids. We, My parents weren't really around. So we were free on the land and we would go fishing and swimming, forge berries, like just, you know, anything. Like we just enjoyed being in each other's company and we had a lot of fun with it. And then in the back, you know, we had a lot of forest. We were always in the forest exploring. We did have a, a hard upbringing, but there was a lot of good times there too. Just thinking back of my my little brother and mm-hmm. he had such a soft and gentle spirit about him when he was little, almost getting emotional. He was you know, a very good person, very kind, very thoughtful. And uh, yeah, those are, those are mostly my favorite memories with him. Fishing and in the winter time, we would go lay on the top of this snowy hill and we would watch the Northern Lights and you could hear them. You would lay in the snow and they they make like a crinkling. It's it's really interesting. It's almost like bells or crinkles or, but you can hear them up there in the North and uh, just 
Flirt or look at things hockey. You know, we'd grab up the net and we'd play hockey with each other. And those are those are some pretty fond memories that I had with them. But then, you know, as we got older, we had different friend groups and he was a boy, you know, and I'm a girl. So <laughs> it's kind of veered off there. <laughs> what would you say he taught you? Kindness. My my brother taught me kindness and forgiveness, especially the forgiveness. I think that's the biggest part because I remember one time I called him when we were much older and we were in our late twenties, we're close in age. And, uh, I was telling him something that was really, really hard for me to come to terms with the first time I ever spoken about it ever, like ever, ever talked about what some things that happened when we were children, he told me, you have to do whatever you have to do to find that forgiveness within yourself. And he sat on the phone with me and just told me that everything's going to be okay and that it was a good person. And that I think that's the biggest part is that my my brother was the first one who ever taught me about forgiveness. And I think that's a very powerful tool that we have here as human beings in this place, but mostly forgiveness for ourselves. You know, often I think we talk about the broader perspective of forgiveness, forgive the other person, forget. I think forgiveness really starts with ourselves and not in a selfish way, but that we have to forgive ourselves for the kindness we show to others when they didn't always forgive ourselves. Because I think that's what usually bothers us the most when we're going back through those recollections of things that happened. Yeah, it made me think about when we connected a couple of weeks ago, you had said something, I think it's, it's parallel to what you're saying about being cycle breakers. I think that's what you said. Yeah, that's, I think that's really vital. On many levels, it's hard for me because I don't want to talk too much about my parents. I grew up very, very violent, a lot of addiction, you know, like many other people's stories. And my brother and I both made the choice not to be like that for our Mm. children. Our children were the catalysts for both of us, especially and uh, understanding what that meant to be a parent, to be involved in your child's life to raise them in a way that was kind and gentle. That was a big part about cycle breaking, I think, for when I was talking about myself and then trying to understand people's traumas and triggers because lateral violence is a huge thing in Indian country. And my very first memories are of violence. And there's still a lot of violence in my life at times, but I'm getting better at recognizing why those things happen and not to always take them so personally. That we all have trauma that we have to work through. It's not like trauma goes away. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be on uh, on the undercurrent. It's that how quickly we deal with that, how we learn to process out those emotions, not to hide them, right? Or suppress them, but have someone that you can talk to or journal, find that outsource or go. That's that's kind of what I do. Go connect with everything because there's things there all the time around us that are cheering for us, that want us to succeed, right? They're there helping us through things. So even when we think we're alone, we're never alone. We're never truly alone. There are our ancestors that love us so unconditionally. And I think that's kind of, you know, another part of how we become cycle breakers as we go back you know, we're, we're walking backwards looking for it. I've heard that before so many times. And I really feel that's true because we have to go back to see sometimes 
the best way to deal with something and bring it forward into the future and then try to impart that legacy on the youth. And this is how we have to do it, you know, approach it as best you can. And I'm not saying like, don't have healthy boundaries, because I feel like that's also very important. That's part of our healing process is learning those healthy boundaries. But that we have to be able to treat each other with kindness where it's warranted. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like nature definitely has been a healing agent. It's also been a teacher. As I was telling our listeners, that's what attracted me to your Instagram page is all the different petroglyphs that you visited. How many have you visited? And I mean, you've probably been all over the United States and places in Canada. Tell us about your love for that. Uh, So I first saw some of these when I was younger, growing up in the North. They're all over the Canadian Shields. I didn't think too, too much about them at the time. Like I knew there was a connection there. I knew they're important. They always marked certain sites. Like I remember I had seen some at, I don't know the traditional name for it, but Hans Hans Lake. There was a, a canoe painted in ochre, like red ochre. What I was told was that because there was a drowning, there was some drowning deaths there. And there was some beings that lived there in the water. And it was to tell other people like, look, they're here. Something happened here. This is significant. And as I went through my life, I was just drawn to these places. I'm not sure how to experience. It's like anything that happens, I would, I would search them out. Or there was times where I'd be just driving somewhere. I could feel it. Like, it's like a feeling, you know, it's like a vibration that comes through your body and you can sense that it's near, that those sites and places are near because some are ceremonial, some are maps, some are for historic like significance. There's a stories in them. They're not just one thing. Again, there's so many different teachings and, and for each nation as well. If someone shares something with me, a teaching we share, right? That's always been our nature trade. So yeah. I'll say something, they'll say something and we'll share back and forth. I won't go into too much depth with that because some things are closed practices and sacred, and it's not my place to talk for other nations, but these places have always been there. They were left for us to pick up the pieces. They're there Mm. for us today and they're still telling those stories. They're not operating on this linear time frame. They've always been there. They'll always be there. I feel like it's also super important that we go back to these places. But again, there's protocol as it's been handed down to me. Always wear your protection, whatever that may be, right? That's really, really important. Speak, speak, if you can speak your language, speak your language there, introduce yourself, right? As I'm walking up, the first thing I do is I'm laying down my offerings, my tobacco, I'm introducing myself in a traditional way. I'm approaching with kindness and respect. That's also very important. And then going there and just being in that moment and feeling it and more just embracing it and seeing what is there, right? What's going to come through. I feel like that's also really important. But those offerings, And the reason I want to talk about that is because traditionally we have always been on the land giving our offerings. That's one thing that I don't often see the youth doing and I'm not knocking them. They're amazing. I'm so proud of them and where they're going. But it's one thing that we have to impart on them is that we've always had these treaties with different beings that have come to us in times, especially need anything, starvation times, anything. And we all have these stories of these beings coming to us and helping us and aiding us when we did need it. And we forgot them or we go into other things, territories like Sasquatch or other beings. And we don't always recognize that they live there too. Like this is their home. 
we can't just go tromping around somewhere and thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to go in here and take these pictures and capitalize off this and leave. There's a whole spiritual process involved in these ceremonies that is the Rothbard teachings. The best advice I can give is find the elders in and the knowledge keepers in that nation and go to them. Help them out. Give them some tobacco. Give them some gifts, some food. Take them to these sites. I think that's really vital as well, because sometimes the elderly don't have access to all of these things, right? They don't have vehicles or a way to drive longer distances. And so it also bridges that connection with the knowledge keepers and the youth and ourselves. And we go and we reciprocate out on the land. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway as well is that reciprocation with these sites. And I have a few people, even some uh, Muniawak, you know, non-natives, who are very respectful that are in this as well. And they're in it for the stewardship, even though I believe we should have our own, we should be the stewards of these sites, not the parks, not the, you know, the government, not private landowners. It should be the nations themselves that are fully in charge end to end native contact with these places. But I have talked to them about the introductions and bringing some tobacco or corn pollen, right? I'm like, go there and do this. It's very important that you do that. Don't just extract from the land because you're doing what every other person has done. And it's nice because sometimes they'll show me pictures, you know, they'll have a handful of tobacco and I'm like, oh, that's very generous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, good job. Good job. I feel like everybody can learn. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I love, I love the fact that you're encouraging folks to be respectful at at these sites. They're not just a place to extract and take. Because I think you told me you've seen places where folks have literally taken off the petroglyph and stolen it. But there are also people who are caregivers and are doing a really good job in making sure like it's protected with structures or it's closed. I love that you also mentioned our elders, our wisdom keepers, making sure that you're getting story from them. We have to be okay if we're denied and and there may be a reason for that and not to take that personally, that sometimes our elders, they mean well, if they feel like it's maybe you're not at the right place where you're at spiritually. I don't know. I think sometimes our elders just know, they just sense things about us. I'm, I'm really glad that you're mentioning that it's important to hear from them. And I love that you said, you know, take them, take them with you if they're open to because they don't have access to these places. And it's a beautiful way to connect generations. So much wisdom there. Thank you. Yeah, I've had even some medicine, medicine people have come to me and they're like, I would like to see this side. Can you take me? And I'll be like, of course. And I remember one time, it was a great memory. I had this one gentleman who was older and he brought his whole family, like his whole family. And it was just great because the kids were singing and laughing and we were drumming and singing. That was another thing too, right? Sing to them, go there and if you know how to sing and if you don't start to learn. Uh, I'm not the best either. I know like three songs, right? (laughs) I know three songs, but I'm building them up. And I think that's also vital that we understand that every single thing is connected, right? So going there and the offerings and singing and praying, that's all the same. You know, like the poem, everything is interconnected. Everything is interwoven. Again, we're never alone. You think you're alone out there. You're not alone. (laughs) Yeah, I want to underscore what you said about Even if you know only one song, that's important. And there's always opportunity to to learn. I remember, I think it was that first year I did this podcast with this other young Navajo woman. She shared 
practice speaking your language, even if it's just your introduction, you're speaking the mother tongue, take yeah. effort and then learn a song. You know, I always remember my parents telling me, if you know at least one song that's like, so if that's powerful. I love that you're encouraging folks to learn the song. And you even said that as you were introducing yourself, you're like, well, I'm still learning. We're all learning. I think our, yeah, our folks who are like fluent in the language, I think they need to also be encouraging too and correct us when we're mispronouncing. Those things are all, all important for sure. So I appreciate you telling us stories about the petroglyphs and how alive they are and that they're sacred. The one thing I wanted to mention that you had said, and I think is important, is that you were saying something to the fact of these sites are our own storyboard and we're telling our own narrative. And this is important because for so long, we've always had people, you know, try to interpret or tell us our own narrative when we need to be in the position of telling our own narrative. I wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to say about that. I feel like that's probably one of the most important things. So with my anthropology degree, I used to sit in class and I would hear things that were so bizarre. <laughs> when does this problem? <laughs> like native people. And we were always talked about in a past tense, right? Mm -hmm. And with words like primitive, I had to bring that forward to one university and I consistently requested that that word primitive be taken out of their lexicon because we are still alive and thriving to this day. The other thing I hear a lot about is people, the Anasazi and the Nephilim and all of these things. And, and I had to explain to one of my good friends the other day, you know, a non-native out of Kentucky, just a sweet soul. I was like, those terms don't come from us. Those are not, those are not correct. We're not consorting with demons or, you know, we do have giant stories, but that's for another day. <laughs> but I just explained, I was like, a lot of these biblical terms come from the Middle East. They don't come from this land. They are not from mm -hmm. our lands. And those things are over there. And that's for them, right? That's their beings. That's their history. That's their accounts of their lands. But we have our own here. And there are some crossover. But you know, it's important to tell our own stories because they're coming from a place of truth. And there is nothing more powerful, you know, unconditional love and truth. They almost go, you know, together. And I feel like that's part of it as well. And of course, there's close things that we can't talk about because we have appropriation. We have all these yeah. things. I've seen authors go to communities and steal stories from Native elders and then publish them as it's their own wording. Like I've seen a lot out there in the last decade plus that I've been around in that field and, and then anthropology. And so, you know, I feel like our stories have to come from a place of truth. We can never have reconciliation or move forward if we're constantly rewriting and overwriting those truths. I see how it has morphed each and every one of our nations that I've, I've been exposed to or um, shared teachings with and how a lot of it has been shaped into that patriarchal, you know, message and norm. Mm -hmm. And it bleeds down into our nations. And with us not telling our truth and our own stories of empowerment, you know, they still keep us at that, that social level, economic primitive yeah. level. We're still in that hierarchy. We're not brilliant enough. We don't have the scholars or the education. And I would say our oral history is more it's worth more than an education after, you know, I have a few degrees and I remember sitting with some other matriarchs. I'll just veer off. And we were at Ogepoge on the plaza. 
these women were from there. Like this was their history. And they're telling me about that. Their ancestors are buried under our feet at this moment, you know, and they're giving their offerings. And before we eat, just sitting in that moment with these other brilliant women with their doctorates and their masters, you know, and here I am this little degree student, you know, <laughs> like I'm just like looking up to them and I'm like, this is amazing. But I, I said, look, I'm really disillusioned right now with my education. And I don't know if I should continue to go forward in anthropology because I'm running into this, this and this. And they said, look, you've plateaued in Western education. And that's the difference. Our education is infinite and forever and unending. And there's only goes so far and it's a degree. And I had to really think about that. And then I had to think about anthropology as a science. It was first created back with like the Greeks and the Romans. They, what they had done is they created anthropology not to help humanity, even though it's a human science. But the whole goal of anthropology was to infiltrate other nations who they deemed less than. That's where we get that social racial hierarchy is from them. And then destroy them from the inside out, learn their culture to destroy them and dismantle them. And their spirituality was one of the first things that they are an attack, right? They'll dismantle another spirituality and they'll put theirs directly on top, like churches and missions. They'll put it right on top of our spiritual sites. They know what they're doing. They've been doing it for over 3000 years with, and they've had a lot of practice in the rest of the world. You know, we were discussing all these issues and I was thinking of anthropology and what I'm doing. And then I thought, no, I'm going to finish my degree. I'm going to go through with this. I'm going to get that piece of paper and have it. But also that I fully understand where that system came from, where it originated from. I was in a theory class and I asked my professor, I said, when was anthropology weaponized? And she's like, that's a good question. She's like, from its onset. And I was like, oh, you know, it was like, bam, it was a huge moment for me to understand what happened to our people and why why that happened. It started way over there a long time ago. And it's been this empirical machine ever since. And the Roman Empire never disappeared. It just morphed, right? It morphed into the Vatican. That's what we have today. That is the current Roman Empire. That's why they had their hands so much in those residential boarding schools, right? That was like a big part of it. And changing the narrative on our religion and our spirituality and how we even have our education today. And that's why I'm a big proponent for us telling our own stories, our own oral initiative, because those can be passed down and they come with a way of knowing. It's not just on a piece of paper that anyone can write and make up. It's yeah. something that comes with, with our teachings and it comes from heart and spirit and it's in our blood memory. I think it also it's important for folks to understand the history and how situations, policies all of these things have evolved. And in the end, somebody wanted something, right? I agree. I think we need to be telling our own stories and, and having people also, you know, be mindful about well, how much they also share too. We have to protect some of these things. And I think you're also mentioning that. I'm sharing this picture here. There's also another form of storytelling. Oh, um, oh yeah, it's my friend, Jonathan. He's a that uh, photo. I love this photo of you. So those of you who, who may not know, this is also in your path. You have been modeling and been in different projects. I, I'm curious about how this this story landed in the sense of like how modeling came onto your path or vice versa. And tell us a little bit about that and maybe even some recommendation to some of our other Indigenous people about this industry and what you've learned in this industry. Oh, okay. That's it. <laughs> I'll try to break it down into cliff notes. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting because I've never thought of myself as 
a beautiful or physical in that aspect. So I, I did attend a French Catholic school for a period of time and I'm left-handed. So you can imagine how that went for me. There was some nice individuals there, but I did get bullied quite a bit. And then when I moved into junior high into more of a public school, where I'm from, actually, my my village, I was bullied terribly. I almost took my life a few times, um, first time at 13, because the bullying was so bad. And it was mainly based on what I looked like. And I even remember going back and picking my son up from that same school at one point. And one of the teachers there had looked at me, she's like, oh, it looks like you grew into your face. And I was like, Oh my goodness. You know, know, like it was, that was what I had. And of course I have these features that are not Euro. So I was not regarded or considered beautiful at all. Like at all. I was considered primitive, ugly, (laughs) basically ugly. It really affected my self-esteem. And then think of all the magazines. We didn't get a lot up there. We barely got any television. And you know, the magazines that would be in the library at school, I would open them up and every single model was a non-native Euro features. And I used to put those on my wall and think that's what beautiful is. I aspire to be like that. I wish I had those blue eyes. I wish I had that blonde hair. And it was heartbreaking because my grandfather could tell that I felt that way about myself. So he would always tell me stories about our Métis women. He was like, they're legendary. They're beautiful. They have raven black hair. I felt like he possibly could have fibbed a bit because he made them always look like I looked in his storytelling. You know, I kind of grew up with that and all the abuse. And I just, I didn't recognize myself. I had no self-love for a very long time until my son, right? And then I had, again, I had to recalculate. So right before I had my son or found out I was expecting, I had this woman approach me in Nanaimo, British Columbia. And she was like, would you be interested in doing modeling with my partner at the time, who is my son's biological dad? And I agreed. Those pictures blew up. They went into a downtown art gallery, like a high-end gallery. They were in a, there was this really nice coffee shop that they were in. I saw them years later too, which was why when I had my son, it was like, (laughs) and I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, wow, that's wild. I have no idea where those pictures went. But then I was pregnant and I ended up a single mom very early on and I went and got my first degree. So modeling was not anywhere near. It was get focused, get your career and get going. Yeah. You got a child to raise. I had someone reach out to me called Shane Balkowicz. And he's like, have you ever thought about doing some portraits? And I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, it's cool. So we did our first series and it blew up. I, I ended up getting put a uh, permanent collections up in uh, Gabriel Dumont Institute for Native Studies. That's uh, Museum and also university. They have me in Conkham's cabin. It was just, it was very well received and I couldn't believe it. And from then on, it just started spiraling Joseph Kane. And then other people started reaching out to me. I was so humbled. Like, I was like, why do they want to take a picture of me? Like, why do they want me as part of anything? Right. Like, I couldn't understand it. And I still am pretty humbled when someone asks me to do a project. Right. I'm like, I'm 40 years old. Like, What I've been told is that we don't get to model after a certain age, right? We don't get those places. And in the modeling world with natives, that is absolutely not true. We are so diverse and so beautiful and so amazing. Like I've met so many 
gorgeous other native people. Like I'm like, which nation are you from? Right. That's the first thing we always ask each other. We're like, where are you from? Where are your people? Like representing. And uh, it's really cool to have those experiences. Right. And I feel like we're not just beautiful on the outside. It's the inside. Like we really are humble. Like you meet those, I consider them some of them native supermodels and they're the most humble down to earth people. Like most of the time, right? You just strike up a conversation. We do our big laughs. It's great. It's a great environment to be around. But Jason Bear, he's actually from right where I'm from. He's Batash as well. And he's a very well-known, more of like a haute couture, Métis designer. I was able to walk in one of his shows. I told him my story. The first time I ever walked on a catwalk was the Swaya 100-year, 100-foot catwalk. And the first time I ever wore high heels, it's <laughs> I was like, oh. but it was great. And then I realized how to channel that energy from that first time. And it's become easier as I, the more I've done it, I want to impart that energy. And I want all those young people to see me up there and be like, I can do it too. I can do it too. Right. I think that's the most important part about all of this is we're setting up a legacy. We're not just like making a spot at the table. We're throwing that table over, you know, making a new one and being like, here you go. Here's your place. You know, we're going to do what we can to make sure that you get in here and that you get your spot and you showcase your nation, who you are, your spirit, you know, because it really is a community effort. And I think that's also the difference between the native fashion world is that it's a community. We all get to know each other. You know, there's always the tea, the red rose tea in (laughs) Indian country, but we all know each other and we support each other. And I love that too. When a youth comes in, it's like we all surround them right away. And we're like, oh, we're so happy that you're here. We're like, we're so happy. And we give them advice and pointers. It's just, it's not a competition, right? We're like, come on, come on. Let's like, welcome in. Let's go. Let's do this. Come on. Because I feel like the native fashion world has kind of been simmering been simmering for over a decade like there's kelly holmes you know she's been in this game a long time uh jessica metcalf from beyond buckskin like these these people have been invested in our community in the fashion world for a very long time and native max magazine is the magazine for native fashion like i'm telling anybody out there just go subscribe go follow because bringing us forward and they've been doing it for a while and they deserve recognition you know, and a lot of people do this at their own cost themselves. Like we're not out here making money. Like if anything, most of us lose money, right? Because it's all about community investment. Like how can we do this so that we have that new table set up for these people to come in so that we can really show the world what we are? I I really want to emphasize in Indian country, it's small. We, we all know each other. If we know one person, you know, you know, there's going to be more connections with each other that you said we support one another. We try our best to support one another, be in anti-mode, right? And trying to guide and and, uh, mentor. And also, I think the other thing you had said when we connected about, I think what is beautiful about being an Indigenous artist, whether that's a painter, whether it's a model, whether that's creating a piece or a musician, that we really try our hardest to be mindful about bringing in the spiritual part of it. Even like this podcast is an art form. And I really believe that it's important to ground and just get in a place of being guided, right? And knowing like, if I own this jewelry piece, right? This, a friend gave to me for Christmas, uh, for my birthday, actually, a good friend of mine. And it was from Alaska. So I know who made it. 
was thinking in a good way and got it from the land. We have to be mindful about that and try to like keep those practices. It's just like the practice you're saying when you go to these sites, these petroglyph sites, that there's some offerings and praying. And so we try to embed that as much as we can in our in our art form. I appreciate you mentioning the the support how we try to show up. I think we need to do more of that. Of course, there's always going to be some outliers that don't, but I think for the most part, for the most part, most people do that. Any recommendations to any of the inspiring Indigenous folks that want to go into this field? For modeling, networking is a big part of it, right? Networking, I would say attitude even more so because if you're out there being laterally violent to other models, the designers are going to hear about it. You're going to be out of this industry pretty quick. Like nobody wants to be involved with people that are that are going to be spreading that, you know, that spiritual sickness. We're there to inspire. We've got a job to do. And it is about legacy at this point. It's not about us. It's about the future for our youth and how we create this space for them. And first and foremost, it has to be safe. So coming in with the right intentions, I feel like is really important. Bringing your personality. Native fashion is all about individuality, right? We're a community, but we're also individuals. We have our own nations, you know, our own traditions. We all have, look a different way, right? All body shapes, spaces, you name it. We're, we're there. That's what matters. That's what makes you unique. That's what makes you stand out. And so just go there and bring your best self, you know, bring your best self. Start following like Native Max magazine, right? Go follow people. And what we do in the modeling industry as well is like when you model with someone, you, the first, one of the first things you do when you're in hair and makeup, you're trading information, right? With the MUAs, with the stylists, with the other models, and you're on each other's pages, really propping each other up. You become cheerleaders for each other, right? And it's a beautiful feeling because you're like, oh, that's, that's how we say fashion family, right? We call each other a fashion family. It's mostly about finding who you are. And a lot of us when we're young, you know, we're still finding ourselves. It takes a long time sometimes. I have a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I'm a 17 year old. And he's still finding himself. He's amazing, incredible. Kind of where it is. Come with your best intentions and who you are. Just know that you're important and you're valued. And even if you don't have self-confidence, it'll come. You'll start to develop that as you practice. And I think that's like one of the biggest things, you know, and take those photos, find your niche, but also try to do things outside the box because often too, they'll try to stereotype you. You'll get not with non-natives or with natives, but some non-native photographers will want you only to do one look and one thing. And I would tell tell anyone, not just the youth, any woman, any man, any non-binary, anybody who wants to be in this, um, just be yourself. You know, and I'm thinking of photo shoots, like I've done things like that one that you just showed. That wasn't something I would normally have done before. But my friend Jonathan was really supportive. He's like, just bring your favorite clothes. You know, there's this beautiful backdrop down in the Bosque, you know, in Albuquerque. And he's like, we're just going to have fun. And we did. We had a great day. It was just lots of smiles and laughs. You didn't see that in the pictures, but behind the scenes, you know, it was just a really good time. And he was one of my good friends. And mm. so, yeah, go out and take those pictures too. 
think of ideas, you know, it, it does cost money sometimes, but think of ideas that you can recreate things. Like right now I'm putting pieces together. I wanted to do like a divine feminine um, model shoot. And I have my friend, Stephanie Big Eagle, who's really on board. We're doing this. We're doing a project with Billy Logan right now. It's months in the works. I can't really say too much, but we want to have a different look. Like what does it mean to us to be a woman warrior? What does that mean? And we don't want to wear our regalia. We love our regalia, but we want to do something like more artistic. Like we want something that really broaches and shows people that pick yourself, like come up with it, with these creative ideas. You know, I try to blend tradition and sometimes symbolism with, and it might not even show up in my photo shoots, but with what I'm doing as well. I feel like that's another thing that we have to remember when we're coming into this. Try to bring your nation with you. Right. That's a, that's also very vital. When you walk into these rooms, you are your nation. The people are going to remember that they're going to remember where you're from. Bring your best intentions, be creative and be true to yourself. I love it. I love that. That's exciting. So that's in the horizon. Any other opportunities, I guess, that you are hoping for in the near horizon? There's a few, I have a few things lined up. I have uh, three or four uh, photo shoots lined up for the first week of May. I'm working with a mentorship uh, right now, a modeling mentorship um, with Miss South Dakota. What else is going on? I will be walking for Jason Bear again for Swaya on May 5th. So stay tuned. That's exciting. I'm really excited to be representing my nation and walking for a Métis designer. I, I love him so much. And he's been, you know, I just have to say this really quick. Jason has been really supportive. My son is two-spirit and he's, he's really into fashion. He's constantly creating his own clothing. I'm very proud of him wow. for taking those steps forward. And uh, Jason is just so supportive of him. You know, I showed him pictures of what Emery was making and that's that's everything. That's really everything. But yeah, I have a few things coming up here. So, but I can't always talk about it because we're not always allowed to talk about our projects, right? Because if we're working with someone like right now, this website's being designed, you know, and it's locked down and we can add our information and our photos. Yeah, you just have well, to wait for them to come out. <laughs> I appreciate you bringing in your son and, and talking about his gift and what he's learning and how you're supporting his learning journey. What do you feel like you're still learning about yourself? That's difficult because I feel like I'm really, really hard on myself. If I'm not doing something every day, I feel guilty. I've really had to slow down. So I caught COVID in 2022 and I ended up with long COVID. I remember being really sick. I was basically dying from COVID. It was really bad. I was laying there and I would go to sleep and wake up. Like I was unconscious for long periods of time for a week, like a week straight. I couldn't eat. Like it, it was bad. And I was by myself too. And I remember looking at my phone every once in a while to just let people know I was okay. And there was a lot of bombardment. Like it was people, I'd be like, Hey, I'm, so, I'm really sick. Like I'm not doing good here. And people would bring things to me and not take care or think to ask if I was okay, I had to learn healthy boundaries. And that's where I learned boundaries from. So, you know, that's one thing I think that I'm still working on is the people pleasing aspect. I caught myself doing it right. It didn't feel good to me, but I was trying to make sure that I honored them and their spirit first. So I have to be more aware of who I am and my needs as a person, right? Especially as a native woman that I don't do things that make me feel uncomfortable or go against my values or judgment because I want somebody else to feel like, you know, good in my presence. I always want people to feel safe with me. 
think that's the biggest thing because I never had that for the longest time. It's like all those boundaries and learning to be less hard on myself. It's okay if you're tired today because you have long COVID. It's okay to rest. I think that's that's kind of where I'm yes. really looking right now. <laughs> yes. 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 There's this book I've been telling everyone to read. It's called Rest is Resistance. Awesome. Me, my, yeah, me, my guy will read it every night. And he's so cute. He's like, I think it's time for a nap. Remember, we're part of the nap ministry. We're, we're, we're doing the nap thing. And I'm like, okay. So I appreciate you sharing a little vulnerability about what you're still learning about yourself. What would you say to our listeners in terms of words of wisdom? And you've had such a beautiful, interesting journey and coming from your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your brother becoming a mother and still learning about yourself. And at this juncture in your life, what would you want to tell our listeners for them to think about more, do more or less? What, what offering do you want to leave with them? That's, that's a, that's a big question because I could probably talk for hours. I talk a lot. Métis people are known to talk a lot. <laughs> I'm already like an elderly. <laughs> Come visit. But, or you could say auntie advice. <laughs> yeah, auntie advice. I am an auntie. You know, I really think it comes down to being true to who you are. And at the end of the day, we're all human beings, right? And there's these deep connections with everything around us. One of the things I pray for consistently and what I'm going to give offerings is I pray that our people will find their way back to connection and the everything and that they will dream again, that they'll dream again. I think that's a really important part and that, you know, we keep moving forward because we really do walk in two worlds. It's a tightrope walk at times and sometimes we fall off and we get back on. And we, again, we can't be too hard on ourselves, right? We can't be too harsh. We're carrying a lot. We're carrying ancestors. We're carrying nations. We're carrying tradition. We could be carrying trauma. You know, there's all these things that go with it. But my wish and my hopes and dreams are that we will not forget who we are and that we will not forget the songs and the ceremonies and everything that was so safely guarded and prayed for us for us to get here. When we do have those things and learn those things in a good way that we teach as many other people as possible in a good way, (laughs) right? Without the violence, right? Try to have these really important conversations, no matter how hard that dialogue may be. And sometimes people won't accept that. You have to forgive yourself for that if you show, you know, we're vulnerable and, and they weren't ready for that. And that's okay too. But that you know that you came from a good place and that your intentions are good. And again, we all fall off. Sometimes I get that little, you know, chaos goblin going and <laughs> like retribution, but that's not always the answer. I feel like the more gentle we are with ourselves and our understandings about all of these things that make us who we are, our connections will deepen and intensify with the everything. I really feel like it's our our part to be those mirrors. We get the light shone on us and we shine it on other people. And at the end of the day, it's it's really about carrying our legacies and creating legacies for others. And, And that's kind of my wisdom. Just try to be gentle on yourself. You know, try to be gentle and be good to others. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to end our time with some fire round of questions. 
So, <laughs> oh, all right, okay. here, here we go. First and last tattoo done oh. on your body. Okay, the first one was uh, my name in syllabics. So that's on my forearm. So that was my very first one. I was so proud of my name. And then the last one was my chin lines. So they were done by a makwa up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And those were done in ceremony, a traditional way. Really important to carry those facial tattoos forward. So yeah, that's the, that was the last one. Mm, favorite tea? Bear root. <laughs> I have some right now. <laughs> well, to build on the bear root favorite tea, what's the medicine of bear root? Oh, there's a lot. Like there's the spiritual medicine and then the physical medicine, which could be the same thing, but it is very good for immunity, anxiety. It's one of the first medicines that where I'm from and other places that bears eat when they come out of hibernation, right? Because it's so good for them. And then spiritually, it's for kindness, truthfulness, and that the medicine will speak for us. That's why I'll chew bear roots or I'll drink bear root tea, especially if I'm going to have be talking so that I hope that medicine speaks for me. Mm. Love it. Thank you for that recommendation too. Cause a couple yeah. of weeks ago when we connected, I was in a much, I think, oh, congested I state <laughs> and you had recommended it and we, we went out to go get some. What would you say? Are you introvert or more of an extrovert? So I am, that's hard. That's a hard question because I love being alone. I really, really cherish my quiet time, being able to connect in. I love being on the land and Often I'm by myself, so I'm I'm out there. But the thing is, when you get me into a room full of people, I turn on and it's the most exciting thing because I'm excited to share teachings, listen to their journeys, their stories, who they are, and then, you know, share my own. And it's like that reciprocal visitor, right? We, we forget a lot of times we carry this medicine of visiting and it's so ingrained in our culture, you know, and I remember growing up going to visit elders especially in the wintertime. That's what you did. You went and ate with them and drank tea and coffee and were told stories. Yeah, I just feel like that's really important to you. <laughs> Salty or sweet? Oh, I'm going to go with sweet because I love cakes and pie. What would you say would be your anthem song? I'm going to go traditional on this one because it's the one that I fall back on continually and it's the strong woman song. I mm -hmm. sing that one all the time. If I'm walking on the land, I'm singing it, I'm humming it. If I have something coming up, I'm listening to it. That would be the one. Do you carry a purse or are you are you one of those individuals who don't uh, carry a purse? <laughs> it's a nerd. I usually have a fatty pack. I've been devoted for so long because when I'm out, uh, if I don't have a fanny pack, I'm going to forget my purse. Like it's gone. Like, I don't know why I have to have it on me. And then when I'm out on the land, I have a really big one that sits on my back. It's like a biking one, but I carry my medicine, my offerings, every water, everything goes on that fanny pack. I'm more of a fanny pack girl. <laughs> <laughs> that I wasn't expecting, I tell you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this connection. I enjoyed how much you shared and taught us. I hope in 2024 that I get to run into you in, in person. We, I would love to meet you in person. Oh, thank you again. Well, thank you so much, Merci, for having me on. It was an honor. And I really am humbled that you've said such kind things and you think so highly of me. I think the same about you. I think you have such a kind spirit. 
And I hope I see you too in 2024. If you come to Santa Fe, you know, on the first week of May, I'll be there and I'll make time for you. <laughs> oh, for the, um, for the, uh, First ever fashion week in Santa Fe. First ever native. It's it's a native fashion week. We haven't had one yet. This is the first one. So well, ever let's stay in contact because I'm just down the road from Santa Fe. So let's make okay, it happen. Great. Yeah. yeah. I, I really want to see you too and, you know, bring some gifts and it'd be good to sit down and have some tea or maybe something else, some hot chocolate. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care. Have a beautiful weekend ahead and we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.